Episode 8 of War in the Book of Mormon, Part 2.2, Mormon, Prophet, Record Keeper, and General. Welcome to War in the Book of Mormon. I am Brian Steed, and in this episode we will discuss the personal history and editorial focus and perspective of the second most important person in the Book of Mormon, the eponymous prophet, record keeper, and general named Mormon. I want to inform you that all opinions and suppositions expressed in what follows are entirely mine and in no way reflect the positions, opinions, or policies of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I want to begin with a quote from the American World War II era general George S. Patton, Jr., as he spoke to other American officers and military leaders, quote, Do not regard what you do as only a preparation for doing something more fully or better at some later time. Nothing is ever done twice. There is but one time to do a thing, and that is the first, the last. There is no next time. There is but one time to win a battle or a campaign. It must be won the first time. I believe that in order for a man to become a great soldier, it is necessary for him to be so thoroughly conversant with all sorts of military possibilities that whenever an occasion arises, he has at hand, without effort on his part, a parallel. Close quote. This quote addresses a fundamental challenge of a soldier and general. There is no such thing as a real dress rehearsal. Every battle is fought only once, and the losses cannot be revived to participate in future events. Once a soldier is killed in battle, he is gone and cannot be rejuvenated through the act of the commander. Patton's challenge, then, was to prepare through study of history so that when a commander or leader of men in battle faced a situation, he could, almost as if he had been there, know what to do because he had seen it in his mind's eye in previous study. Mormon was a man who exemplified this challenge the best as he struggled to protect his people from annihilation. By a simple win-loss record, Mormon was not a terribly successful battlefield commander. According to one count, he won nine and lost twelve battles over which he had personal command. Few people, thankfully, judge him by this narrow focus. Understanding Mormon occurs when a reader understands him as a complete person who is not simply the longest-serving Nephite chief captain, but also the preeminent Nephite record-keeper and a prophet of God. It is through all three of these aspects of Mormon's life that he becomes the man capable of compiling an annotated sacred record which includes his spiritual and historical insights. He was the quintessential great soldier described by Patton. He was thoroughly conversant with the variety of possibilities and used all of these to assist his people as long as possible. Many may wonder why an episode on Mormon appears so early in this podcast. It is because every discussion of armed conflict which follows was provided through the efforts of this man. To understand the record of armed conflict in the Book of Mormon, it is essential to have the best possible understanding of the recorder. Who was Mormon? There is more information on the background of Mormon than on the vast majority of personalities found in the Book of Mormon. 
Despite this statement, there is still very little detail about his life. I will provide a summary of the information found in his own record with some inferences. The first appearance of the name Mormon is in the title page of the book that bears his name. Here we learn that the Book of Mormon is his account and is an abridgment. The title page was written by Mormon's son Moroni too. Readers first read words from Mormon in the Words of Mormon, which is a single chapter volume thrust in between the small plates of Nephi and the large plates of Nephi. Here, Mormon provided a verbal bridge from the detailed religious accounts of Nephi 1 and Jacob 1 to his own abbreviated historical religious account. He also provided a transition to explain the historical setting that is not clear in the Book of Omni, but needs clarification prior to a reader beginning the Book of Mosiah. The first question is, what do we know about Mormon? We learn in this first reference that he is living at the end of the Nephite period, hundreds of years after the coming of Christ. We also learn that he has a son whom he expects will see the end of the Nephites. We then learn that Mormon has abridged and compiled the record of the Book of Mormon from a collection of records handed down from kings and prophets. This all comes in the Words of Mormon, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. This is not a lot to form a sketch of this character. It is later that Mormon provided more insight into his lineage and origins. We learn in 3 Nephi chapter 5, verse 12 that he was named after the land of Mormon, where the prophet Alma 1 taught and baptized after being expelled from the land of Lehi-Nephi by King Noah, and bore the same name as his father, as we are told in Mormon chapter 1, verse 5. He was a disciple of Jesus Christ, quote, called of him to declare his word among his people, that they might have everlasting life, close quote. From 3 Nephi chapter 5, verse 13. Mormon serves as one of the greatest examples of an applied historian, or one who teaches applied history. He was not presenting history for the sake of history, but he was doing so to serve a purpose, and that purpose was to help his readers to become better people. As previously noted, he was a selective religious historian, carefully choosing which events and stories would be best to convey the message he was inspired to prepare, as we are told in 3 Nephi chapter 5, verses 8 to 9, and verses 14 to 18. And those things which he was directly commanded to write, as he says in 3 Nephi chapter 26, verse 12, he mentioned several times the direct inspiration and commands of the Lord as he prepared the record, either in what to write, as noted above, or what not to write, as he said in 3 Nephi chapter 28, verse 25. Not only was he instructed by Jesus Christ in the formation of his abridgment, either through the Holy Ghost or through direct communication, but he was also instructed by the three disciples of the Nephites who did not taste death, as he said in 3 Nephi chapter 28, verse 26. In addition to being a historian, he was also an eyewitness of some of what he wrote as expressed in Mormon chapter 1, verse 1. He was a pure descendant of Lehi, from 3 Nephi chapter 5, verse 20, descended through Nephi 1, as said in Mormon chapter 1, verse 5. 
He therefore considered himself a Nephite as he delineated between the familial tribal groupings at the beginning of his own record. He was approached by another descendant of Nephi one, the prophet historian Ammaron, who said the following in Mormon chapter 1 verses 2 through 4, and I quote, And about the time that Ammaron hid up the records unto the Lord, he came unto me, I being about ten years of age, and I began to be learned somewhat after the manner of the learning of my people. And Amron said unto me, I perceive that thou art a sober child, and art quick to observe. Therefore, when ye are about twenty and four years old, I would that ye should remember the things which ye have observed concerning this people. And when ye are of that age, go to the land Antum, unto a hill which shall be called Shem, and there have I deposited unto the Lord all the sacred engravings concerning this people. And behold, ye shall take the plates of Nephi unto yourself, and the remainder shall ye leave in the place where they are, and ye shall engrave on the plates of Nephi all the things that ye have observed concerning this people." This was a priesthood assignment given by a person serving in the capacity of the sacred record keeper to a man, or boy really, designated through inspiration of the Holy Ghost. Mormon moved from the north to the land southward, and he lived in the land of Zarahemla as an eleven-year-old boy, as told in Mormon chapter 1 verse 6. That same year there began a war between the divided tribal groups that he described as Nephites and Lamanites in Mormon chapter 1 verses 8 through 10. We can only infer from his account that he witnessed some portion of the battle as it occurred in the borders of the land of Zarahemla, and he recorded a figure for the number of the Nephite army in Mormon chapter 1 verse 11. The Nephites were successful in this battle, and several battles that followed, and peace was restored. Despite this peace, Mormon painted a picture of Nephite wickedness and abandonment of God in Mormon chapter 1 verses 13 and 14. It was during this period of no spiritual gifts that Mormon had a personal conversion experience where he, quote, was visited of the Lord and tasted and knew of the goodness of Jesus, close quote, as a 15-year-old, as explained in Mormon chapter 1 verse 15. His conversion led him to preach, but he was forbidden by the Lord because of the people's wickedness, as he says in the very next verse. In the same year as his conversion, he was selected to become the chief captain of the Nephite armies. He gives only one reason for his selection as captain. In Mormon chapter 2 verse 1, he was large in stature. Previously, he recorded his description of himself as having a sober mind and noted that Amaron described him as a sober child. The paucity of descriptions of his character caused one to question why a 15-year-old youth might be selected to lead in a time of significant political turmoil and large populations. Remember that the Nephites had fought at least three battles a few years earlier. By the descriptions in Mormon's own record, it seems that the Nephites won some or all of those battles. At least they did well enough that the Lamanites did not continue their attacks for several years. This means that there had to have been successful battlefield commanders in the community. 
the Nephite people could not have been at a loss for candidates to command their armies, yet they chose this boy. This is a point that we will come back to when we get to the eighth part of our series. One of the things I do want to illuminate is in Arabic and Hebrew, to refer to an important person, sometimes one could use a phrase that can be translated as a big person. So when Mormon says large in stature, he might be referring to the fact that he was physically large, a big boy. Or he could be referring to the fact that he was from an influential family, and therefore he was large in stature in a conceptual sense as viewed by the community. Mormon commanded the armies through numerous campaigns. His conflict between a desire to call his people to repentance and listening to the commands of God that began with his first revelations continued. The wickedness of his people and their unwillingness to humble themselves before God eventually caused his resignation from the service of his nation, as he tells us in Mormon chapter 3, verses 9 to 16. After something like 37 years as chief captain, he stood as an idle witness and watched for 12 years before his love and commitment to his people compelled him to return as chief captain. Prior to his return, he gathered and secured all the records of Amaron. He had previously honored Amaron's command and began the work of abridging the record. It is this record that he provided to his son Moroni too after the final Nephite loss at the hill Cumorah. In summary, a reader knows that Mormon knew his lineage and described it as pure. He valued his personal history as a direct descendant of the first patriarch of the Nephite nation. He was known and observed by the prophet historian of his day and trusted with uncommon information about the location of the records of the Nephites and God's dealing with them. He also traveled as a young man from north to south of the lands controlled by the Nephite people and culture to live in the land of the capital of his people. Shortly after arriving, a great battle occurred that he may have witnessed. He was a large man, either physically or socially or both. He received a personal spiritual conversion as a 15-year-old that led to his desire to spread the message despite his age. He received further direct revelation about the limited nature of his personal ministry. Then he was selected to be the chief military officer for his nation. He fulfilled the request of Amaron collected the records, and began the abridgment process. His personal commitment to the principles of God and the defense of his people were in conflict nearly from the beginning and caused an extensive rift in his service. We also know that he had a son to whom he later transferred the records. What was Mormon's history? His general history and life story have been given, but what shaped him? This section is something of a timeline, a delineation of what Mormon did, when he did it, and placing it in relation to other events. The intent is to understand the shaping events and gain a foundation to assist readers in understanding why Mormon emphasized what he did. Mormon began his military service, so far as we know, as a chief captain at the age of 15. He served in this position for about 37 years when, at the age of 51 or 52, he refused to continue to lead the Nephite armies. 
His principles enforced retirement lasted about 12 years, and as an approximately 64-year-old man, he returned to again be the Nephite chief captain. This final period of service lasted a further 11 years and culminated with the destruction of the Nephite nation and military at the Hill Cumorah when Mormon was about 74 or 75 years old. Just a brief note of comparison. Moroni, the primary chief captain in the Book of Alma, served from the age of 25, as we are told in Alma chapter 43, verse 17. He served approximately 15 years before retiring from military service at the age of 40, and he died at the age of 45 or 46. Mormon served more than three times the length of the best recorded Book of Mormon military leader. Mormon began fighting engagements, battles, and campaigns very soon after entering his service as chief captain. He continued throughout his life. The nature of conflict was altered after the coming of Jesus. It changed from the previous simple subjugation and domination to the destruction of an entire culture. The battles fought by Mormon were not simply for control of resources, but for the survival of the Nephite way of life. In this endeavor, Mormon ultimately failed. I want to place this in a context within Scripture. I think the best biblical analog for Mormon is the prophet Jeremiah. Both Mormon and Jeremiah were blessed, or you might think cursed, to see the fulfillment of their prophecies. As they prophesied to the people and called them to repentance, both men saw and knew, as they called them to repentance, that their people would not listen, and they saw the ultimate ends of their people. Jeremiah, in both his book and in the book of Lamentations, gives us a powerful view into the sadness of a prophet who is called to observe the end of his people. If you choose to understand Mormon better, I would suggest that you read Jeremiah and you read Lamentations. And in the sad chapters and verses where Jeremiah expresses the travails of being a prophet to an unrepentant people, you can understand that which Mormon is feeling throughout the record that he provides. Prior to this failure, Mormon fought in four major wars between the Nephites and Lamanites. Each of these periods of conflict contained subordinate campaigns which in turn consisted of numerous open field battles, defenses of cities, marches, countermarches, logistics preparations, defensive preparations, and other military actions. He, or armies under his command, fought in at least 25 battles in at least 11 separate campaigns. I think the number is probably something like more than 46 major campaigns and battles, but we aren't given sufficient detail to know for sure. He had a personal and general win-loss record of less than 50%. It is very interesting that Mormon provided little detail about his own actions in comparison to the effort and space he used in describing the military tactics and efforts of earlier commanders. 
Each of the battles mentioned could have been similar to a campaign in their complexity and effort. The preparations necessary to defend an entire society were enormous. It is clear that the losses were large and catastrophic in scope, not just at Camorra, as several times following a Nephite defeat they surrendered large sections of their land and fled before their opponents, as we are told in Mormon chapter 2 verses 16 and 20 and chapter 5 verse 7. In final, Mormon lost the last two battles of his career, leading to the complete destruction of his army and his people's way of life. Mormon's death, which occurred sometime before the year 400 AD, is recorded as a statement of record rather than giving any details. We know he was killed by Lamanites who also hunted Nephites who fled into the land southward as provided by his son in Mormon chapter 8 verses 2 and 3. Before I dive into Mormon's personal editorial approach, I want to address and re-emphasize a point that was previously mentioned in an indirect way, the role of God and gods in war. This is a topic worthy of a podcast in and of itself. It will be dealt with here in a very brief manner, as the point in this chapter is to express the cultural way that a deity was involved in combat. It was common in ancient time, and in a smaller manner, even down to the contemporary era, to call upon deity prior to battle. The invocation of God's blessing, or a God's blessing in many cases, was not just a nicety to comfort scared and troubled souls, but a necessity since failure to perform in a proper prescribed manner could bring ruin and destruction upon the entire community. This was true of all the peoples who fought in and around the Levant, the Near East, and the entire Mediterranean world. It was not simply an invocation, but there was also a profound belief that success came through the protection of your God, and that failure was a sign of divine disfavor or impiety. In most religions in the region, failure may not reflect on wickedness or righteousness, but on improper regard and ritual performance. For the children of Israel, it clearly was a reflection of righteousness or wickedness. The prophets made this clear on numerous occasions. The book of Second Kings contains a wonderful exchange between a mouthpiece of the king of Assyria and the people upon the walls of the city of Jerusalem during the siege of that city in 701 BC. This was addressed in episode 3. A portion of this exchange lays out the pagan view of the role of gods in the protection of cities and peoples. I quote from 2 Kings 18, verses 34 and 35. Where are the gods of Hamath and of Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim, Hena, and Eva? Have they delivered Samaria out of mine hand? Who are they among all the gods of the countries that have delivered their country out of mine hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of mine hand? Close quote. In this small quote, the mouthpiece identifies the cities and nations that have fallen to the Assyrian armies, and he questions those standing on the wall, what makes your God any better than all of those other gods who have failed to protect their people before the might of the Assyrian army and its God? 
Earlier, he expressed a profound understanding of the reforms of King Hezekiah and the king's efforts to cut down the sacred groves and destroy the high places. In the mind of the Assyrian messenger, this made the people less worthy of divine assistance because he saw a defiling of sacred sites rather than a moralistic purification. In summary, God was a personification of the strength of a people. If the people were defeated, then the God had no value. It is a circular argument. One of the better known instances of this comes in the Old Testament book of Daniel, when the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar is very angry with the three Jews who will not bow down to his idol, but would rather be thrown into a fiery furnace. As I read this, please listen for the reasons for anger on the part of the Babylonian king and why he might find the stubborn faith of the Jews brought before him to be infuriating. I quote from Daniel chapter 3 verses 14 and 16 through 19. Nebuchadnezzar spake and said unto them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Do not ye serve my gods, nor worship the golden image which I have set up? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Then was Nebuchadnezzar full of fury, and the form of his visage was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Therefore he spake and commanded that they should heat the furnace one seven times more than it was wont to be heated. Close quote. Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed the temple of the God of the Jews. The sacred objects from that temple sat in his vaults. How could they claim that their God was more powerful than the God of the Babylonians who enslaved them? This is a common worldview for those living in this era. The world is about the tangible, and those who are victorious in battle are clearly blessed by the most powerful gods. Consider this as we discuss Mormon's philosophical approach to battle and God. In Mormon's description of his own life, he placed first the fact that he received personal revelations from God over the fact that as a 15-year-old he was selected to be the military leader of his people. He further downplayed his elevated position by saying it was because he was a big boy. It seems as if Mormon wanted us to focus on the miracle of personal revelation about the atonement of Jesus Christ rather than on his selection as military commander. Think about how we respond to similar events. Might we be more inclined to praise a young woman for a tremendous performance in sport, a play, or musically, more so than her testimony shared with and through the Spirit? In this small way, we demonstrate just how different Mormon's perspective is from that commonly held, either in his own day or our day. He was called by God because he was sober-minded, a mental and spiritual trait. 
He was called by his nation because he was big, a physical trait. This is indicative of the perspective that Mormon followed throughout his writings about armed conflict in the Book of Mormon. He wants people to focus on the spiritual rather than the physical. Why events happened was so much more important than what happened to Mormon. A specific example of this is his consistent editorial commentary to emphasize the whys of events. These are typically made with the phrases, thus we see, or we see, preceding his comments. He uses these statements 23 times throughout his abridgment to emphasize certain points. Not once did he use the phrase to point out a historical or military point, but rather he used them to draw attention to spiritual lessons from the events recorded. There are more uses of the phrase than 23, but those additional uses are provided by other writers or come within direct quotes of other prophets or missionaries. These counts do not include the more than 1,000 uses of the word behold, which has a similar meaning. Behold is used 1,147 times from the words of Mormon to the end of Mormon chapter 8. Certainly, not every reference is a direct emphasis on a spiritual teaching, but significant percentages are. Entirely consistent in this emphasis on the spiritual rather than the physical is the fact that he did not allude to his military experience when recording information of other conflicts. He did not expound on his credentials to comment on military events. He did not say, in my experience, or I learned from this. But he tried to use those types of events with which he had great familiarity to teach those principles he considered the most important. Unity, covenants, preparation. I want to dilate on this point for a moment. In my experience, with generals, I have learned that they like telling other people about what they learned and how they learned it. Mormon, as a general, not wanting to share his significant personal experience, definitely sets him apart from almost any other military commander. The description of armed conflict turns a corner as a reader changes from the Book of Omni to the words of Mormon. Armed conflict is no longer a thing that happened and upon which the recorder briefly commented. It now becomes a central thread running through the rest of the volume of scripture. It is like conflict is now a major character in the story, if not the major character. This change in tone is also noted in the use of metaphors. The teachings that use metaphors of seeds and trees and other scriptures to convey the message typically come through the writings or words of other prophets and not directly from the teachings and exposition of Mormon. Mormon was not a common general of times past. He was not a historian in the ancient or modern traditions. He did not seek in his battle narratives to aggrandize himself or his accomplishments, as did the Roman general and dictator Julius Caesar or the Greek general Xenophon. 
He did not seek to simply record the cause and effect of events as the classical historians or to emphasize cultural development and transition as do modern historians. He was a prophet who was seeking to use history and his military experience to identify stories in the Nephite past that could best illustrate those principles he had been taught and inspired to know would be most critical for his audience. As the investigation into the armed conflict of the Book of Mormon continues, it is critical to keep in mind the perspective of the primary compiler of the record. He is a teacher of God's word and not a teacher of military tactics or strategic thinking and maneuver. This is not designed to be a manual for a military academy, but to be a treatise on preparing ourselves to achieve victory in the battle with evil and stand on the field clean of sin, able to face our Savior and Redeemer without guilt. He emphasized this through the story of the people of Ammon, or the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, that we are told in the book of Alma, chapter 17 through 28. In brief, these people were Lamanites who converted to the gospel of Christ after Nephite missionaries served and taught them. They were hated by other Lamanites, and some sought to exterminate them, which resulted in the deaths of hundreds and probably thousands. Rather than defend themselves at the risk of killing others, an act for which they had repented and they did not wish to repeat, instead they prayed as they were slaughtered. Eventually these people fled the Lamanite lands for the Nephite lands. These are people who could be viewed as cowards by the contemporary Nephite and Lamanite cultures or by the contemporary Near Eastern and European cultures. Within 150 years of the events regarding these people in the Book of Mormon, the Jewish zealots in their revolt against Rome would conduct one of the most romanticized acts of defiance in ancient history. On the hilltop fortress of Masada, the zealots conducted a communal act of sacrifice rather than fall into the hands of the Romans. This romanticized view of history rather than slavery by the zealots is contrasted clearly by Mormon who emphasized the importance of obedience to covenants for eternal benefit rather than achieving temporal moral victories. Mormon used the image of complete submission to the will of God and the path of complete personal atonement as the message he emphasized. He used the we see phrase three times during the story of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's in an effort to point out that this submission to the enemy in support of a sacred covenant was more important than victory on a battlefield. Even though Mormon was not teaching history or military tactics, he did provide tremendous insight into them. Armed conflict was his metaphor of choice. To understand Mormon's point completely, it is important to understand the subject of the metaphor in the detail necessary. Mormon's first campaign, or war, in command, which I labeled the second post-visit war, I recognize that's not very creative, ended somewhere in 330 A.D., and the Lamanites did not attack again until 345 AD. This is a long time period. In this period, Mormon mentioned his preaching and the effort to get the people to repent. 
but there was no mention of defensive preparations. The third post-visit war continued from 345 to about 350 AD, and the fourth post-visit war did not start until 361 AD. In this 11-year gap between the wars, there were defensive preparations in Mormon chapter 3 verse 1. Why the difference between the two periods of non-war? I do not want to overstate the differences. As we are told that Mormon did fortify the city Angola in Mormon chapter 2 verse 4 during the second post-visit war, and it is possible to infer that he fortified the city of Jashon. However, there was no mention of fortification or serious preparations during the interwar period. One of the significant differences was that during the first interwar period, Mormon recovered the plates as he was directed by Amaron. He would have done this at about 336 AD, as that would be his 24th year when he was commanded to get the plates in Mormon chapter 1 verses 2 through 4. This was in the middle of the second to third post-visit war interwar period. I suppose that by the time he was commanding in the third to fourth post-visit war interwar period, he had read of the efforts of Moroni and how Moroni fortified in times of peace. And then, I imagine, Mormon applied those key lessons that will be laid out in the episodes to follow. I believe that Mormon was such an avid applied historian because he lived that life. He had applied what he learned from the sacred history, and it made him a better commander and made his people safer. He believed it was possible to benefit from the study of history because he had. I recognize that I am extrapolating facts about events into a supposition of intent and belief. Maybe I'm wrong. I like to believe I'm right. As a summary of Mormon, I want to make a brief comparison with a well-known, near-contemporary figure of his, the Roman Emperor Constantine. In the same year that Mormon was born, the soon-to-be sole emperor of Rome, Constantine, was winning the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, where he had his soldiers affix crosses to their shields and armor based on the dream previously experienced by the emperor. This is poetically appropriate. When Constantine began his efforts to usurp power and become the sole emperor, there were no less than four men claiming the title Augustus. Over a period of more than nine years, Constantine battled and defeated each of his rivals to have himself proclaimed sole Augustus of Rome. He would go on to establish a new Rome and call it after himself, Constantinople, or Constantine's city. He also legalized the Christian religion and over the course of his reign would make it the most influential and powerful religion in the empire. Constantine took an empire at the brink of collapse and in near complete turmoil and created a world wherein that empire gained a new lease on life. By moving the capital to a new center, he further guaranteed that when the empire did split, there would be two centers of culture and Roman civilization. 
Constantinople would stand as a center for Roman and Christian culture and civilization into the 1400s, more than a thousand years after Constantine founded it. This city also became a bulwark of defense that regularly turned aside invading armies. Think about the simple fact that Constantine built a city that would be a major place of fortification. He also conquered all of the empire. From this brief and oversimplified description, one could claim Constantine a success. When one compares Mormon's accomplishments in a similar time, the results are radically different. Mormon was not an emperor, that is true, and the land of Zarahemla was not Rome. However, the differences are useful and important. Even though Mormon was not an emperor, he was a magistrate of sorts with the power to direct the affairs of his people in more than battles and fortifications. This is specifically noted in his writing an epistle to the king of the Lamanites for the general battle at Camorra, as recorded in Mormon chapter 6, verse 2. Mormon seemed to play some role in the dividing of the lands in an earlier treaty between the Nephites and Lamanites explained in Mormon chapter 2, verse 28. He was responsible for the designation and fortification of the city and area around desolation, making it a city upon which Lamanite armies broke. These similarities are useful in illustrating the major differences. The major difference between the two men is that Constantine fought under the symbols of Christianity, while Mormon was a living example or symbol of Christ. Mormon refused to surrender his values and beliefs for military or political success. He was a man of God. In a geopolitical assessment, it would be easy to praise Constantine and criticize Mormon. One restructured an empire and founded a city that lasted a millennium, while the other was unable to prevent his society and civilization from collapsing entirely. However, such simple criticism misses the large spiritual mark of our role in this world and what it means to perform our labors. There must have been something special about this boy leader who became the longest serving Nephite general. He lost his first three battles and yet he was kept in command. He then inspired an outnumbered army to victory. Later, he would again stop a series of defeats and retreats by leading one of the great underdog victories in the entire record at the First Battle of Shem, about which we are told in Mormon chapter 2, verses 20 to 25. He gave no details about how he accomplished this great leadership feat, just the simple statement that it was done while being severely outnumbered. As I have previously stated, there is no trivia in the Book of Mormon, nor are their stories without links or purposes. I like to believe that Mormon used some of the same tactics used by Moroni at the first battle of Manti to achieve his great victory at Shem. In this supposition, he was again the great applied historian, which may explain why the relatively small and obscure battle at Manti was so thoroughly recorded and chosen to be the primary battle narrative in the entire record. Once again, just my opinion. 
Mormon was the great leader primarily because he inspired and lived according to his convictions and testimony of Jesus Christ. As such, he should stand larger in stature than Constantine and those other figures in history we so often elevate. Mormon's record concluded with the total destruction of his people and their culture. This was what Nephi 1 foresaw in 1 Nephi chapter 12 verses 18 to 19 and what caused his heart to be grieved. With the destruction of the Nephites, the military history comes to a conclusion. Despite this cursory approach to the history, Mormon achieved his true aim by providing his readers with the information they would need to succeed on their own spiritual battlefields. Our task is to recognize the lessons he shared for what they are and apply them in our lives that we may stand victorious before the judgment bar of Christ. For those who may be concerned that we haven't addressed the details of Mormon as a commander, his battles, his wars, and accomplishments, don't worry. We will cover that material as we arrive at it in the chronological order of the Book of Mormon in Part 8 of our podcast. I want to introduce listeners to Mormon so that you can see his unique voice and perspective as you read and listen in the episodes to follow. The next episode explains the Antichrists in the Book of Mormon. This topic of Antichrist is an important one, and it regularly plays a role in how conflict is portrayed. For this reason, I will discuss their various teachings, actions, intents, characters, and the results of their activities in this part of the podcast. I will then refer forward or back to the episode as each Antichrist comes into the story. I invite you to reach out and ask questions and send comments to me on Facebook at War in the Book of Mormon or at War in the Book of Mormon at gmail.com. All one word, War in the Book of Mormon at gmail.com. Until next time.